everybody's doing good. Hope uh, there's no one that's supposed to be here that is stuck in transition somewhere between here and and where it is that they live. The reason I say that is because I took my dog out uh, last night to go to the bathroom and his pads were getting stuck to the ground. And so uh, my wife had to go out and carry him in uh, so that he could be unstuck to the ground and uh, finish his business and come in and get warm. So it's that bad. And maybe there's some people that normally are here today that are stuck somewhere. Uh, so you might want to keep an eye out. Uh, if there's a person that sits in the pew next to you normally and you're like, wonder where they're at today. Uh, you may want to help them retrace their steps and just see if, uh, if perhaps uh, they need a little assistance getting unstuck. But, you know, uh, whether you're stuck literally or whether you're stuck spiritually, uh, the reason why we gather every week for worship uh, partly is so that whatever it is that is uh, clouding our mind and our judgment regarding the life that we're called to live, we get a weekly reset, don't we? Where we can come here and we can refocus our vision and think about what it is that we're called to do and why we're called to do it. As um, we kick off the new year uh, with a series that I, I think sometimes um, we don't really go back to the fundamentals, uh, maybe the way we should regarding just who we are as a church and why we do what we do. Uh, I, I really want to ask the question, and hopefully you're asking it too, and I, and I know whether you say it verbally or not, you think it sometimes, and that is, how does all of this fit together? How does this work? And, um, and I know sometimes we tend to forget uh, don't we? Whenever we, we, we come to church, it gets to be sort of a routine and a rhythm that we're not thinking really why we're doing what we're doing. And um, it, it's kind of like an experience that I had uh, uh, yesterday. I was in the house, had cabin fever like everybody else. So I started working on some projects around the home. And I was upstairs working on something, and I, and I said, you know, I need, um, I need this particular tool that is down in the basement so I start walking down to the basement to the place where the tool is. And then I, as I'm standing there, I'm like, now why did I come down here? And I'm like, I can't remember why I came down here. Now, usually my brain works pretty good most of the time. But occasionally I have those moments. And I just wonder, does anybody else have that? You know, you walk into an, okay, good. I, I was wondering if I needed to check up from the neck up, but it's obviously something that everybody uh, has an experience with. So here's what I did. I thought, well, I know I'm supposed to be down here for a reason. I don't remember why. So I, I started walking back up the steps. I get almost to the top of the stairs, and then I'm thinking, oh, yeah. So then each step I'm saying, I'm getting the drill. I'm getting the drill. I'm getting the drill. And then when I went into the room where the drill was, I'm like, I know why I'm here, to get the drill. But the funny thing is, we have that ability to forget why we do what we do. And church, I don't think, is an exception. We can do it over and over, and you can land in, in a seat here, or in, in, in a group here, or in a Sunday school here, and you can forget why it is that you're coming here in the first place. And the thing that I would like to hopefully underscore for the next four weeks in this series is just uh, the why. Uh, and, and, and occasionally we do have to ask those questions, don't we? You know, those, those interrogatives. I want to show a little graphic up there of just a funnel with some questions on it. And it looks like this. I, I think if you're doing anything, uh, and especially in our, in our message today, 
there are people asking who, what, when, where, how, and, and why. And as those things took on meaning regarding a certain purpose, uh, they moved us towards a certain action and response. And that's what I hope happens here with us. Uh, and as we, as we begin this series, what I'd like to do is just um, help you to be aware, in case you didn't know, uh, what are some of the things that shape the identity of First Christian Church? In our tradition, uh, we lean pretty heavily on a set of verses that are found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 47. And these verses are actually a response to the who, what, when, where, how, and why. Uh, and they actually define a people that respond to those questions as those questions were answered by Peter in, in an extremely powerful sermon, so powerful that the Holy Spirit just rained down on everybody. And uh, it was a defining moment for the church. It was really the first time that people gathered in the name of Jesus to be on purpose with the mission that he called them to do collectively. And when they gathered, Luke said, I can write a lot of things about happen in the worship gathering some people chewed gum, some didn't, some put them underneath their pew. I could go into trivial details like that, or I could just tell you what the, the key takeaways are so that they'll always remember. And so Luke wrote these words. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And essentially for the next four weeks, I'm just going to be looking at that as our primary text because it truly is the foundation for us, uh, within the, the denomination, if you will, that we, that we emerge out of, it was something that was drilled into the minds of pastors who were trained in institutions relative to, to the Christian church. But I believe, because of the way the story of line of God unfolds and actually is fulfilled uh, in Jesus, that it really is worth considering and uh, I, I, I believe it so much that if you look at the graphic right now, what do you see? What is that? What does that look like? Any, any molecular biologists in the room? Okay, I'm not one. I'm not even going to pretend to be one in the pulpit. But I will tell you that that is a strand of DNA. You know what DNA does? You probably heard it and you're like, yeah, we know, we know. But maybe you don't. If you look at who I am right now in my 54-year-old body, there's a, a, a very small set of computer commands that are wired into every cell of my body that's telling it to respond in, under certain, in certain ways under certain conditions. And for some reason, at age 21, that strand of DNA said, all right, Leonard used to have brown hair. Now it's going to turn gray. 
And so in college, I started getting a lot of gray hair. And I just told everybody, look, let this be a word of warning to you. If you go to college and you eat too many McDonald's hamburgers, this is going to happen to you. But in reality, it was just my DNA saying, nah, it's about that time. Now, obviously, it kept sending the signal because it's just increasingly gray. I'm just hoping there's not a set of instructions in there that says, all right, at around 60, just help him to lose all of it. Now, no offense to anybody who's, who doesn't have hair on their head because some people, probably the people in the room who don't have it, you wear it well. But I don't think I've got that kind of a head. So I just wear a hat a lot. But I have no control over it because it's what my, it's what my DNA is telling me. And it's told me a lot of things about like how tall I am, how, you know, of my fingers shape and all that stuff. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. And did you know that when God called the church into being on this day, it was the day of Pentecost. And it was uh, a period of 40 days after the ascension of Jesus. And God said, I, I kind of do things in a 40-day rhythm. And after Jesus ascended, people are like, what's the game plan? Who's going to guide us? Where do we go? How do we gather? What is it that God is doing? And there was a lot of questions about the uncertainty of the moment. Not realizing that on the 40th day, God was going to say, it is on. And on that day, sure enough, Peter got up on Solomon's porch right by the temple. And he said, look, God's been busy for the whole storyline of our people making promises about a day when everything is going to be settled in such a way that it will be a defining moment for humanity. It'll be a game changer. It'll be a vision for life unlike any other vision we've experienced before. And I know you've heard it. It's called the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus but sometimes we don't stop and think about the significance of why that mattered. In the last song that we sang about the resurrection and the amen, like so may it ever be, it is a statement saying there is a power now at work in God's people that are rewiring um, the family of God and hopefully it will just ripple out into all of humanity. Now what was he took us in our brokenness, in our need, in our uncertainty, in our worry, in our shame, in all of our frustration, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you. And so when Peter preached the sermon, he said, Jesus came to save us. And a lot of people were saying, we're looking forward to a better day, and we do need a savior and that's why we're there. they were there in the temple. They were wondering, God, are you going to guide us on this? Because we understand what Jesus did. And we're starting to, starting to clarify in our mind and make sense. Oh, that's what you're up to. And then when Peter preached, it was like, we're ready to hear this message. Because we've been asking a lot of questions about what God is up to and sending his son off. And now we're, we're kind of left hanging. God said, Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. And then he sends his Holy Spirit down upon that, that first community of people. And he said, 
I'm going to begin to rewire you into a new people. I'm going to take the very DNA that is inside of you that is perhaps not working so well for you or working so well for you relationally and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reset it. And you can't do it on your own but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my spirit. And my spirit is going to remake you not just individually but together as a people into something different. So when God said that he would do that we, we read those beautiful words in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And there are four parts in 42 that I just want to look at today. And, and I, I'm just going to sketch them real quickly. Because I think they are the DNA. If somebody said, why did I go to church again? Oh yeah, we want to be like that first gathering of people who first heard the good news. And we want to hear, we want to hear the word. And we want to we want to gather um, in, in fellowship where we are with other people doing it together, and we want to we want to enjoy a meal together. And 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 the the focal point of that meal will be the death of Christ, a covenant meal. And then we want to pray for one another. And if you were to ask me, what are the foundational essentials of life here at First Christian? That would be my go-to. I would start with Acts 2.42 and I would say, we are a body of people that gets the guidance that they need for life from the Word of God. So when we have things that we're sorting through, things that we have questions about, things that we just need additional understanding about how to live this new life, there's no better source than the Bible. And as... The Apostles' Doctrine is proclaimed in sermons, in teachings outside of this room, with, with volunteers, with paid staff. Our whole goal is to help you know that if you're confused, or you have uncertainties, or you're working through something, that's the place where we begin. And we can never forget that. But then the second thing that, that is in our DNA is, is something called fellowship. Have you ever heard the word koinonia? Koinonia is a rich biblical word. It doesn't just mean, you know, a gathering of an organization of people. It means these are people that have a purpose. They actually are gathered for doing something that reflects what it would be like if God called a new community into being, a a new DNA. And how do you know if the DNA is working in this new community? Well, because the Holy Spirit is just rewiring us, one of the things that Paul said that I hang on to, and that is, if you want to understand the mindset of a person who's a member of God's family, you can, tell, you can tell when they're getting it right and when they're not getting it right. You can tell when they're faking it and you can tell when, when they're, they're sincerely trying to move into it. Because this is how you test it. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit? Do you see in the demeanor of the people that you interact with a spirit of love, and joy, and peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Hey, if you see that stuff going on, then the people in that body, whether it's in this type of a gathering or a smaller one, they're in tune with the Lord. They're in tune with their Father. They are just bearing His image to the people around them. However, if you find in any of us anger, rage, selfishness, bitterness, unforgiveness, all of those things that you know in your gut are like, those are not life-giving. And you know we're missing the mark somehow. You see, when Peter gave this sermon, and the people were listening attentively, they knew that Peter was saying something that was going to reshape their life here on earth. And when Peter was describing all the things that Jesus did to save us, then he says something that, 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 that makes them painfully aware that they do need rewiring. And you know what he said? He said, I want you to know something. Jesus came and he embodied everything that we were called to do. He showed us that mind and that heart and that attitude, that fruit. But here's what happened. As he was doing it, the old DNA said, that ain't working. That doesn't work. He doesn't belong here. And so Peter said, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then everybody's like, oh, because they were beginning to see that there was a new way and God was wiring them for a new way and the Holy Spirit was convicting them of this new way. And they realized something. That they were complicit in martyring the very Son of God. And they said, what do we do? And Peter said, he used the word repent, which can mean, you know, don't smoke and don't chew and all that stuff. Or it can mean something a little bit deeper like turning away from something that is just leading you into death and turning towards something that is leading you into life. And where Peter was turning them toward was the cross of Christ, which is the source of our forgiveness and our salvation. And then the empty tomb, which is the empowering side of the equation that says, now that you've been delivered, you're being called to something in this DNA. Very powerfully stated. You're called to a new vision for a new way of life. And when you gather together, your DNA is going to have that fruit. You'll know that it's working. That fruit's coming out of your life and into the life of your conversations with other people. You see, here's the problem with any community of people. It's like the old saying, you know, I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. And we all have our moments, don't we? Maybe you had a family gathering uh, over the holidays, and it was like, man, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. We got into a debate about politics, or we got into this or that, and man, I'm just like, whoa, it's time to go. But wouldn't it be awesome if every family gathering you had was really premised on the fruit of the Spirit? Everybody just behave that way? And when God looks at us, he's saying, you used to carry on that way, but I'm calling you out of that into something different. And the Bible is the way that we get guidance on what that something different is. And then fellowship, the koinonia, is actually the 
proving ground. It's the place where we practice it. A lot of us come to church even though we've had misunderstandings with people. We've had disagreements with people. We have been offended by people. But we come here anyway because those people that we have those issues with, we've tried to reconcile with. We've tried to work it out. Because the value of the relationship is far greater than the pain that we sometimes cause each other. Right? And the only way that that works is if, well, if the Holy Spirit's in the process rewiring us for something better. The only way. I mean, there are a lot of people who aren't in church today, and it's not because the pads of their feet are stuck to the snow somewhere. It's because they have been injured. They have been judged. They have been hurt in some way or offended. And they're like, "Ah, I can't do that. But God says, no, I'm calling you to be a people to work through that together. And so it is a responsibility, isn't it, for us to step up our game and do the right thing when we need to do the right thing. And when we're not doing the right thing, to say, yeah, I got to own it. I got to own that. Is this the right thing to do? Because I belong to something larger than myself. I belong to a new community, a new humanity. I'm being rewired or to be a forever person. And the fellowship part of it is not only the relational interactions that we have, where I have to tell you, I've learned a lot about my own dark side by interacting with other people. Because I've seen, I've seen the worst of myself come out. I've also seen the best of myself come out. And I've discovered that in that environment, I've learned and I've grown and hopefully transitioned into a better place in my head and in my life. Why? Because I'm just following the guidance of what it means to be in Acts 2.42 church, to be part of a body of believers like that. So here we are. We're, re- we're hearing the word. We're in fellowship. And then it says something intimate. Now we can gather in these rows for sure, and that's awesome. We need to do that. But how many of you have asked somebody after church, let's go do lunch? And then after you sat down at a table across from each other and you started talking, all of a sudden, what happens? You start to connect, don't you? You start to have a a conversation that takes on a life of its own and maybe even a relationship that takes on the life of its own. Because in in, in wiring our DNA, God says, I'm going to do something that you used to do anyway, but it's going to be so much better. I'm going to encourage you to eat meals together. I'm going to encourage you to have conversations around food because that seems to be the common denominator for rich fellowship. But I'm going to take it one step further. I'm going to integrate that into a weekly gathering ritual. And I use that word ritual in the most positive sense of the word. It is a consistent, ordered interaction with the Lord at his table. It is the taking together of food that just so happens to symbolize the very reason why we're here in the first place. A cup that looks reddish like the very blood that made my repentance a 
not only a possibility, but a doorway to transformation. And a body that's broken that says, I became one of you so that you can become one of us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now we are children of God. And it is powerful. We consume this together in a way that says, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, us together as a body, we are integrated together in a remaking of our DNA. Are you with me so far? Okay. That's who we are. And as we gather around this table, it's just one rich opportunity week after week to recall not just my own sins, like, God, I did, I did chew. I, I, maybe I smoked. Maybe I drank. Maybe I went out with girls who do, but I didn't because I'm not supposed to because what's on my finger? But I sinned. And God's saying, yeah, that's great. That's great. That's important. But also think about the people that you're with. Are you where you need to be with the people that you're with? And that's an important question. So then, Luke, when he writes this, he understands that in the world that they live in, you only ate dinner with people that were like yourself. Socially, economically, culturally, you didn't eat dinner with people that were outside of those different social categories. And you know what Luke said when he was writing the Gospel of Luke rather than the book of Acts? He was saying, the common complaint seems to be about you, Jesus, that you're always eating with sinners. What is wrong with you? Well, it definitely doesn't fit the old world way of our DNA, does it? But if God's doing something new, then my guess is he's doing exactly what he feels like is the most important thing to do. And that's inviting people like you and I to a meal and saying, At the very core of my being, God looks at you and I and he says, I'm a lover of you because I created you. And I want nothing less than to redeem you and be with you forever. So a community is necessary, not just one person out doing Lone Ranger stuff. It has to be done together. It has to be embodied together it's our purpose. Now, um, there's a kid in my family that some people are, I've heard are calling him Jesus. He's my oldest son. And he's a college student. And I'm guessing he's just too cheap to get his hair cut. And shave his beard. I'm thankful that he's not so cheap that he doesn't take a shower. So that's a plus. But I did tell him when you're gainfully employed, you might want to make some adjustments in the personal appearance department. You know, I'm that guy. Hey, long hair, you need, to go sh- you need to cut your hair. Only I was that kid, too, that had the long hair. But he went out to Kansas, uh, Fort Hayes, Kansas, the middle of nowhere, in the middle of winter, to study a group of people, Russian-German immigrants. Now, what are Russian-German immigrants? What does that even mean? just means that at some point, about three or 400 years ago, a bunch of Germans went to Russia and they settled in a certain area because they were farmers and it was suitable to their 
to their interest. And they kept farming that ground so much so that the Russians said, we're going we're gonna to exempt your boys from conscription because you're so productive in your ability to produce grain. And as it turns out, they went to about five different places around the world. And one of them was, of all places, they must have used darts or something, Kansas and Nebraska. Now, if you've ever been through Kansas or Nebraska, go at night because it's easier. It's just the same type of topography as the place in Russia was where these German, Russian German, they were Germans who were Russians. They settled over there and Christians had a project where he wanted to evaluate why they went to specific types of regions to farm uh, for a project that he's working on. And so he thought, I'm going to drive my car to Fort Hayes, Kansas. I'm going to go start knocking on doors and asking questions. I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to find out. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's interesting. I hope it works well for you. So he went out there and he started knocking on doors in the morning. And people are like, it's Jesus, but we don't think it's Jesus. So they didn't open the door. But have you ever noticed that in the... Have you ever had this feeling late afternoon? I feel kind of lonely. There's something about being low in your blood sugar and all that. You just feel like, man, I'm kind of depressed. You, you feel a little bit of that. Well, he, he said, you know what, Dad? I knocked on doors around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and people were just opening up their doors and saying, come on in. I said, that's interesting, isn't it? He said, I'd come in, I'd talk to him, and I actually met some descendants of these, of these farmers. And um, I got to find out uh, some more information about him. He said it was, believe it or not, very productive, made some friendships for life. And... The thing that, that emerged in their mindset was, he said, they have what's called an agricultural imperative, which means that wired in their DNA is this purpose that we are called in life to farm. We can't help ourselves. No matter where we go, all we think about is farming. And so unique in that regard. But I think God's wired into the larger community a sense. There are a lot of people, there need to be some that are called to be farmers. And those guys got the calling. But what's sad is, is another thing that's emerged in the great western plains. And, and the, the descendants of this farming community are not exempt. Did you know that the highest, that the, the, the one people block... It has the highest suicide rate right now are farmers on the Western Plains. Because right now farming is not a sustainable thing you can get into without a large scale operation. Little farms just can't do it. And these farmers left and right are saying, I've done everything I possibly can to keep my farm going. And I just can't. I've been doing it for 10 years. I can't do it anymore. And then you'll hear story after story of these guys driving out into the field somewhere. And then their wife calling 911 or the police and saying, that's where the phone says he is and I think the worst. And just over and over and over. And the bottom line was their agricultural imperative was so wired in their DNA it was like, if I can't fulfill my purpose, then I don't even want to live. And it's very tragic, isn't it, to think about it that way. 
But I think whenever God calls us into a place like this, there's something kind of similar going on. There's sort of an imperative that says, first of all, I'm going to make you so uncomfortable with the life that you're living apart from me that I'm going to allow the negativity of your circumstances to draw you into a place like a church. And hopefully if that church is true to their DNA, there'll be a good enough environment that on balance, that's a sustainable place for you to begin to become my child or my children. And as God's doing that to you and I, he's also saying, I not only want you to be saved, but I want you to, I want you to do things here in life that are purposeful, that add value to other people's lives, that are redemptive, that just show that I'm at work in your life, that you're rewired into a new DNA and that your Holy Spirit embodies himself in your life so that people see him in you. And I'll tell you, when you come into a church, all those things are on God's mind. He can't help himself. And you're going to feel it because there's a part of you that says, I want to be part of the family, but I want to do what I want to do. You know, it's like, you ever had a... Uh, um, Maybe it's better to say this. I was that teenage kid that enjoyed being the family and all the perks of being the family, but not necessarily responsibility. You know what I'm saying? But you grow up a little bit and you're like, yeah, you know what? Now I can't help myself. Now I can't help but order my kids around to do the same thing. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Now I can't help but maintain what, I, what I've been given. Now I can't help myself. And it's like God is... Growing us into a place where it becomes the new familiar. So we have the word. We have the fellowship. We have the Lord's table and other meals that we're also called to gathering. Because I think it's kind of a catch-all for all of that. And the last thing that we have is the thing that makes all the difference in the world. Did you know, I can kind of sense as a pastor for 30 years, when people are praying for me and when they're not. I can just get a sense. I don't know, it's a game changer. But you know what else I get a sense of? When I see servants in the church who are not quite in that place, I'm asking the question, is anybody praying for them? Are there people coming alongside them to encourage them, to help them? Do they know that they're being prayed for? Or are they feeling, yeah, I feel connected in some spiritual way because people aren't praying for me. And so when Luke said, when they gather, they got to pray or it doesn't work. It is our divine connection to God and to each other. It is an unseen reality, but clearly a real one. It is the thing that changes everything. And so for the next uh, three weeks, starting on the 14th, we're going to be gathering here and just invite any of you to come or be praying on your own. 
And we're just going to spend an hour from 4 to 5 praying on Sunday afternoons about the church, about our mission, about each other, about things that we have in our lives that we need healed of emotionally, physically, about aspirations, about opportunities coming up, about new and cool things that God would bless. Whatever it is, God says, I will take that to the level that it needs to be if and only if you consider it important enough to pray about. It's just his way. Now I just end this message with, with hopefully um, an invitation into how we do things here. And it may be that when you think about Jesus on the cross and you realize, yeah, I start to see the significance of it. I don't need 40 days. It's starting to become very clear to me right now. I need him as my savior. That's the place to begin because that's why he came. And that's why we're here. And if God's saying, you need to take that, then you need to take that. After the service, I'm, I'm in the studio. Brittany's in the studio. Sean's elder over there. Um, Brian is over here. That's why we're here. And, and, and just it, people around you, for sure. We want to encourage you along those lines. But it may be that God's saying, we're moving you forward a little bit because it's kind of a sliding scale with me. Last year is not this year. And we're moving into who you're supposed to become and who you already are in Christ. I don't know where you're at. If you remember that cone, the who, what, when, where, how, why, it's all centered on Jesus and the whole storyline that promised that one day he'll come and it will mean everything. But when you find that out, then you start to respond like, okay, what do I do with that? And the early people said, here's what we do. We get together and we start eating together and we start praying together and we start reading the Bible together and we start having a time of, of committed fellowship together. And maybe God's saying, I need you in a group. I need you in a place where it's not just coming in and, 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 and hearing a message and leaving. I've actually made you for community. And we have a variety of communities. We have Sunday schools. We have groups. And, and one of the things that we want to do is just make sure that there are, every pathway possible is present for you to travel down to connect. And maybe God's saying, you know what? New year. Let's begin to walk into something new as you think about the year that's ahead. I want to pray for you and for this series as I conclude. Father, as we come before you in the spirit of Acts 2, in the wake of the whole experience of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, in light of our own shortcomings, our own sins, our own anxieties, our own worries, our own hopelessness and despair, in light of a world that just presses in in all of those ways so much that all we can do is be anxious. Come before you, Father, just asking that you would move us into something that's 
good. You made us for that, Lord. Help us to remove the scales from our eyes, the chains that keep us bound, the will that says, I don't want to. And give us a new heart, a new sensitivity, a new desire. Put you first. And a trust that when we do, you'll move in our hearts and minds in ways that we've never felt or experienced before. And you'll move us, Lord, each of us, into relationships where we can become the people that you call us to become because it's almost exclusively in community that you do your best work. I just pray for our church. I pray for these gatherings that we're doing as we pray, as we lead people into groups, as we offer our lives to you with the hope that the new identity that we have been given will play itself out in such a way that we will have that peace and we will have that joy and we will have that love. I just pray, Father, that you just flood all of our souls with the reality of those qualities as we surrender to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.